The following talk was given by Jeffrey Sugan Arnold Roshi during a Fusatsu ceremony at Zen Mountain Monastery. Sugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Vasatsu is a reflection of our Vasatva path, which is really a path of sanity, of respect, of concern. Spring rain illuminates the valley. Some blossoms have already come and gone. Others are budding. Trees are leafing out. Most of the migrating birds. Each morning we hear the mating calls, nesting songs of the feathered ones. As we reflect quietly from every direction, the Buddha Shakyamuni calls us O oh, students of the way, to gather together within the Sangha treasure and to invoke the earth-protecting divine beings for all the many forms they take and are inspired by their virtues as we dedicate offerings, make offerings to beings in all directions. May they be protected and may their beneficial actions in a sense, the Buddhist path is very simple. To just not cause harm. To not bring confusion and pain into the world. Teachings that accord with our own nature and the nature of all beings to harmonize inner and outer. And in essence, just to simply be a beneficial influence. Just that just to be a benefit, recognizing all the ways in which we and human beings show up in the world, to choose again and again, over and over, to be a benefit, to respect and appreciate all those divine beings that protect the earth and everything in it, in all the ways they appear. When we protect each other, because every living thing has a natural self-protective impulse, a natural intelligence to live, to protect itself. When we protect other beings, beings who are vulnerable, manifesting as Jesus Bodhisattva, when we protect the earth, any being that needs help, needs support, needs protection, do they, in turn, protect us? Do they offer protection in return? What would that mean? How might that show up? As the Buddha was sitting at the foot of the Bodhi tree on the cusp of his enlightenment, and Mara, who's known as the destroyer of peace, appeared to destroy this peacemaker, this person, this being who, within his enlightenment, 
would spend the rest of his life trying to bring peace into the world. And Mara said, by whose right do you sit here declaring your intention to be enlightened? And the Buddha said, by virtue of countless lives I've lived in all different forms, in all different lives, under all different conditions, but always dedicated to protecting self and other, to protecting those from delusion, from liberating. And Mara said, who beyond yourself can vouch for this? And the Buddha touched the earth and the earth goddess appeared and affirmed the Buddha's declaration by causing the earth to quake, to shiver, to quiver. How are we to think about all of the many beings that appear in the teachings? We chant to the 16 guardians and all protectors of the Dharma. Who are those protectors, those guardians? The sun and moon, the mountains and rivers, the valley, trees, creatures of all shapes and sizes, beings in all manners of existence, deities, spirits, all of these many devas, all of these many beings who appear. How are we to understand them? When someone lives peacefully, brings peace into the world, works for the benefit of alleviating suffering, does the earth and its inhabitants delight in that? Do they take joy in a human effort to not create, not only to not create pain and confusion, but actually to do all they can to bring about all that is good? Does the earth actually enjoy our presence, our efforts? In recent years, there have been so many books and people researching various members of the animal world, the other than human animal world, how they live, how they relate, how they communicate, their various languages, how they mourn, how they play. (laughs) One author I was reading said, if you see some animals doing what very much looks like play, they are probably play. (laughs) How the plant world also can communicate. How members of different species can form relationships, take care of each other, raise young. I've told the story of how Many years ago, when we were living in the A-frame, Jimon looked out. She wasn't. She was sick. She was not well. So she was there during the day, and she looked out in the field. And there in the middle of the field was Chloe, who was one of our earliest cat, uh, Sangha cats, and a turkey and a fawn, all sitting in a circle. <laughs> this is a true story. 
<laughs> when we don't understand the sounds, the ways of other beings, we can just, in our hubris, in our lack of understanding, decide that there is no intelligence here. There is no communication. There is nothing. We alone are unique in all of the qualities that we recognize as human. And that somehow out of a complete absence of any of those qualities in any other living thing, we suddenly appeared. <laughs> Dogen said, the great way of all Buddhas thoroughly practiced is emancipation and realization. Know that there are innumerable beings in yourself where there is birth and there is death. What are these innumerable beings in ourselves? Each thought, each image, each impulse, all the voices, all the personas. No wonder we feel scattered and fragmented. And so in one sense, we are bringing these all together into one body, into one being, into one harmonizing, into one peacefulness, into one intention and one aspiration. When we live dividedly with those many beings, we see the world as a divided. We see all the many beings of the world as divided, and the conflict is inevitable. There are innumerable beings in this world. The limitless self, Dogen says, where there is birth and there is death. And so we naturally and rightly think of the precepts as teachings, guidelines, trainings in how to not create harm. Because wanting to not create harm, we see, is not enough. Committing to not creating harm is not enough. Recognizing the ways in which we create harm is not enough. We have to cease creating harm. If we want to stop suffering, we have to stop creating it. And so this is the precepts, living as a Buddha, as one who is a bringer of peace, which is, means we're not creating the causes for regret and remorse and sorrow and sadness and in that fertile ground, our practice will blossom. This is what the Buddha taught. But are the precepts not also? Are they not also? As we become more attuned, less armored, more wakeful, more compassionate, more caring, aren't they also bringing us into closer contact, into intimate contact, intimate communication, within and beyond words, with all the many beings of the world, the earth-protecting divine beings, with all the guardians of the earth, human and beyond human, sentient and insentient. And as we come closer, more attuned, do we begin to actually speak the same language, realize we share not just a tremendous amount of DNA, <laughs> but a common language what would that language be?
And as we come closer, are we then more and more able to be inspired by the virtues of those many beings, by their qualities, by all that they offer? Conversely, when we are not practicing this way, and everything becomes more distant, everything becomes more dull, then naturally we're not going to hear more subtle forms of communication. We're not going to feel or be attuned to those forces, those energies, those shared um, pathways. And not experiencing them, they will not exist for us. And not emanating from those many beings, those beings will in many ways just seem dead to us. And so then it seems logical from that view to see whether they can be used or not for our benefit. How much of our present dilemmas are at the root, this lack of intimate communication, true communication? There are so many words being spread around, but so little reflection. So many consequential actions, but so little taking personal responsibility. False words, divisive words, harsh words, meaningless words, true words, unifying words, loving words, insightful words. When we are moved by a spring flower, by a budding tree, by a flowing river, by a changing sky, by the tireless dedication and beauty and unselfconsciousness of Earth's creatures. What is that? What's happening there? We say, I'm moved by that, I'm inspired, it's beautiful, I'm touched, but what's actually happening? Is something being communicated that is beyond words? Is this an ancient language that we're experiencing that is shared by everything in this universe, in this vast web, Indra's web of mutual dependency, an ancient language between those who share so much genetic ancestry and evolution, but more, a kind of primordial kinship, a shared and equal investment in the well-being of the earth goddess. Think of the unspoken communication that happens in Sashin. We're in silence. We're not speaking to each other. We're not even really engaging each other in eye contact. Very normal, everyday, ordinary ways of communicating, checking in seeing how we're doing, how are you doing, what's up with you, all of those normal ways of communicating, we let go of those in session. Why? Well, we say, and rightly so, so we can let go of the internal dialogue so that we can go deep into that inner chamber Dogen speaks of, go deep into our study of the mind of Buddha Dharma, bring the Buddha to life, Is that not also at every step along the way 
entering into an unspoken communication, an intimate kind of contact, without knowing each other's particular experiences, something essential, something vital, something alive is known, is shared, is exchanged. Dogen in a fascicle on intimate language says, the world honored one has intimate language, intimate practice, intimate realization. When you encounter a person, you invariably hear intimate language and speak intimate language. And this is true whether we know or not. He doesn't qualify that. He says, when you encounter a person, you will hear intimate language and speak intimate language, although we may not know. And then he says, when you know yourself, you know intimate actions. Intimate means close and inseparable. There is no gap. Intimacy embraces Buddha ancestors. It embraces you. It embraces the self. It embraces an action. It embraces generation. It embraces merit. It embraces intimacy. Is there anything it doesn't embrace? Is there anything that's left out? When intimate language encounters an intimate person, the Buddha eye sees the unseen. Intimate action is not known by self or other, but the intimate self alone knows it. And I was studying that again this afternoon. I thought this is a gorgeous, and I would say perfect, expression of the koan of intimate realization. When intimate language encounters an intimate person, the Buddha eye sees the unseen. So what he's really saying is practice is allowing ourselves not to become, but to return to this intimate person. And then we encounter an intimate language, an intimate kind of communication. And in that, the Buddha eye sees what is unseen. And this action, because it is intimate, is not known by self or other, but the intimate self alone knows it. And so that can help us to appreciate how, when Dogen says to forget the self, how we have to find our way in to this intimacy, which is always present, is our very nature through intimacy. That's why we can't do it through ideas and concepts, by will, by force. And so how do we free ourselves of those things that keep us apart, our dullness, our lethargy? We sharpen our senses. We come into aliveness. We bring ourselves into a state of aliveness. We bring the body into a state of aliveness, like every living thing, right? It's alive. And we let go and gain faith in not creating the endless and unnecessary burdens and barriers and impediments. And so, in a very real way, to live the precepts is the path to hear 
and speak intimate language, to know yourself, to know intimate action, to be embraced, to embrace the self, to embrace intimacy. And so to live the precepts, because we begin not intimate with our intimacy, we have to practice both our lack of intimacy and in our intimacy at the same time, at the same moment, because they're non-dual. Think about that. That in the moment when we're practicing something that seems to be obstructing, we are practicing that lack of intimacy, that separation, that gap that Dogen speaks of. And at the same moment, we're entering into and beginning to encounter the language of intimate communication before knowing, beyond knowing, without knowing. That's why sometimes when you experience something, a moment such as that, and you try to figure out, just remind yourself, it's none of your business. It's not yours to figure out. It's not yours to know in that way. Aren't we then really trusting, developing a trust in a, not just a, another aspect of our consciousness and another aspect of, of our being, but another aspect of language, communication, contact. And so we cultivate and practice being willing to step forward even when we're not clear to practice the precepts even when we're not sure of our intentions, if they're really clear. We practice willing to be patient and observe when that, a situation allows that, to try and see into it more deeply. Sometimes we don't have that opportunity. We just have to respond. We practice being attentive to the consequences of our actions and take responsibility for them. Right? Which sounds simple. Probably most of our parents taught us that probably more than once when we were young. But to truly take responsibility and to live in a time where not taking responsibility has virtually become a way of life. Its own form of social dialogue, interaction, The results of that can't be good. <laughs> and isn't all of this bringing us into a state of keen wakefulness, greater sensitivity, more open-heartedness, the necessary aspects of intimacy? Aren't all of these aspects of practice, in fact, when you know yourself, knowing yourself, knowing intimate action, being able to recognize being close and inseparable and trusting that, allowing that, not retreating, not resisting, not going back to old habits, that when we see that there is no gap, we enter in. Moshan Leoran, the ninth century teacher, Chan teacher, she had a student and brought him to enlightenment 
And she was speaking to that student, or that student was speaking to her one day and said, what is Summit Mountain? And Moshan said, you can't see its peak. It's hidden by clouds. And her student says, what hermit lives there? What are they like? And Moshan said, neither male nor female, man nor woman. They have no appearance. What is Summit Mountain? You can't see it with your ordinary eyes. You can't meet it until you are tuned to the way of the mountain. We can't meet our true self until we are attuned to the nature of the true self. To let go is to be in attunement with non-attachment. When you encounter a mountain, you invariably hear intimate language and speak intimate language. When you encounter the self, you invariably hear intimate language and speak intimate language. But the student wants to know who lives there. What are they like? They don't have an ordinary appearance. They don't speak an ordinary language. When we let go of the ideas of separation, of absolute differences of me and you, as unexamined entities, when we free ourselves of all of those categories and definitions, then different modes of being become available to us, different ways of seeing, different ways of speaking, different ways of listening. Right? One of the perennial questions, and rightfully so, of a Dharma practitioner is, how do I trust myself? Recognizing that the self is a, a tricky thing, not always trustworthy. How do I trust myself? Because you are guiding yourself at every step. And so we have to learn, in a sense, the language of the deluded self. It's been speaking. We've been speaking it all our lives, but we haven't really necessarily learned that language and learned how to decipher it, learned how to read it, to know what it's saying and to know what else it's saying, to know when to trust it and know when not to trust. Because the peak is hidden by clouds, we get caught in those categories and definitions. But with time, the clouds no longer obscure. The clouds are among those many innumerable beings. The precepts point to this, Zazen points to this. When we do a practice like the four measurables, and you visualize someone or a host of someone's that you're extending that compassion and kindness and gladness and equanimity to. When you visualize a deity or a bodhisattva endowed with all of those great qualities, for instance, of Kanon, when you visualize an oak tree in the garden, or Yunmen's shit stick, or cake, or Dogen's blue mountains walking over water. When you bring that into your mind, a mental image, 
and become intimate with it in one embrace, intimate embrace, one intimate action, one intimate awareness. What that requires is letting go of what would divide and separate, of what would create the gap. And in that moment of intimacy, there is communication. Intimate language, encountering an intimate person, the Buddha eye sees what is unseen, what cannot be seen with the ordinary eye. And because the ordinary mind hears those words and thinks of things and creates known and familiar mental images, just hearing those words can cause confusion. As we try to imagine, picture, project that so that we can move towards it. And so that's what intimate action, intimate language requires, is to go forward unencumbered, go forward without knowing, empty-handed, trusting that much. Dogen said, there is a simple way to become a Buddha, After all of his teaching on birth and death, undivided activity, these most profound teachings, difficult to understand. You know, isn't that what can be so maddening about direct pointing, direct teaching, direct language, direct uh, direct teaching that is not trying to, to give you knowledge? It's not trying to do that. And so when we meet it with our knowledge-seeking mind, looking for those words to convey meaning and knowledge the way words normally have, we will be frustrated. Because those words have a different intention, a different purpose. And so rather than be frustrated to try and bring our mind into attunement with that intimate language, which is not based in our reference system, in our way of seeing things, which means we have to relinquish that. And so, yes, it is going to challenge us. It is going to be difficult until we release. And so then Dogen says, there is a simple way to become a Buddha. When you refrain from unwholesome actions, are not attached to birth and death, and are compassionate towards all sentient beings, respectful to your seniors, kind to your juniors, not excluding or desiring anything, with no thoughts or worries, then you are a Buddha. Here, seek nothing else. And that this, these words, this pathway, this expression of Buddha, is not in conflict. That's why it's Buddha, a maker of peace, a bringer of peace. It's not in conflict with our world, our lives. Buddhism isn't interested in that. It's not interested in teachings or practices that are in conflict with our life. What's the point of that? We have enough of those things. It's sole interest is in freeing us, realizing we are already 
liberated. We are already speaking intimately, embracing intimate action. And so we practice that in all of the simple ways that we take up becoming a Buddha. That is what we're doing all throughout the day this week. That's what it means to practice our lives. And so can we see how all of this is all of this? Eightfold path, 800,000-fold path, eight million billion-fold path, one single path, whichever you choose. There is a simple way to become a Buddha. And to do what Dogen presents us with here is because it's simple, it's hard to trust. Because it's simple and so close, because it is intimate, it's hard to see. But because it is our very nature, it is our complete capacity to see. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.